You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Uh, as Ovi said, uh, we're going to be starting a new sermon series, and it's, uh, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, if you know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, it's actually found in Matthew. So it's, it's three chapters in Matthew. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, and, uh, and we're spending about 16 weeks going through those three chapters, right? 16? I think it's, I think it's 16. Uh, it's 16. Um, and if it's not, it's Ovi's fault. So... <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so we'll, we'll be spending uh, quite a bit of time going through that, and, um, and we're going to uh, mostly be in Matthew, or really only in Matthew. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is also in, found in Luke, at least in part, uh, and then Mark alludes to it throughout the book of Mark, but Matthew really has the whole thing. Um, so that's why we're going to be spending all that time in Matthew, um, and, uh, and I'm, I, but there's some context I want us to know, or at least Matthew wants us to know, for the Sermon on the Mount to really make sense. Um, so uh, today we're actually going to have two sets of, uh, of, of kind of notes, right? So there's, there's going to be a set of Matthew wants us to know about Jesus, right? Um, and then uh, the second set is what Jesus wants us to know about his disciples, right? So what Matthew wants us to know about Jesus and what Jesus wants us to know about his disciples, and, uh, and I'll just, I'll tell you the points right now, and then we'll pray and we'll start getting into the text. And so uh, the points are, uh, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the promised Messiah, and he is the Lord. So that's what that Matthew wants us to know that, right? And, and we'll, we'll build that up and we'll, we'll talk about that as we, um, uh, as we kind of build that case. Um, and then also uh, what Jesus wants us to know is that about his disciples is that his disciples changed the world around them. They cannot, they cannot hide his, their discipleship and they cause others to worship God. So let's go ahead and pray. And we'll get into the text. Dear God, I just, uh, I just thank you for this opportunity for, um, for your believers to, uh, to just get together and, and look at your word um, and just study how, um, how Christ uh, kind of gives us our identity and, uh, and he gives us our, our jobs, um, but he also just gives us his love and, um, and he changes us and works with us um, and works also through us. And as he, uh, as he shapes us and molds us into the image of God, uh, and as, we, uh, as we're shaped into the image of Christ, um, you do your work through us, which is more than what we've ever deserved. As if salvation wasn't remarkable enough, that you take a step further and you actually do your work through your people. And I just thank you for constantly working to uh, to change us into this new creation, to, to make us something new, to make us into something like sons of God. We love you and just ask that you just open your word to us um, and that you just, um, you remove me from the equation and that you, you speak to your people. And in Jesus' name, I pray all these things. Amen. So, 
like I said, we're going to be in Matthew, and, uh, and we, need, we need to kind of get into the head of Matthew, right? Uh, what is Matthew uh, trying to accomplish? And we already, I already spoiled it for you. I'm going to set my timer so I make sure I'm not going over. Sorry, I should have done that ahead of time. There we go. So we need to get into the head of Matthew. What is Matthew trying to communicate? And like I said, I already told you, Matthew, uh, he primarily wants us to know that Jesus is the true Israel uh, and that Jesus is the promised Messiah, right? Um, and, uh, and so these, these two things are largely going to be kind of played out or explained in Matthew 1 through 4, right? And then Matthew 5, uh, he gets into that last point where he starts betraying or portraying uh, Christ or explaining Christ uh, as Lord. And, uh, and so Matthew is a little bit different uh, in this context. Uh, he, uh, he's, it's not that he's not concerned about chronology, right? But when he talks about the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ, uh, his main focus is going to be portraying or explaining how Christ is the promised Messiah and he is the true Israel and he is the Lord, right? So uh, there's uh, chronology. Yes, uh, he, he does maintain a chronology, um, but it's just not his focus, Right? And, uh, and, and that's, that's important. And, and so let's back up. We'll start in Matthew 1 and we'll, we'll kind of build this case. So Matthew 1, uh, Matthew starts with the genealogy of Christ. He goes all the way from Abraham, uh, who was the father of the, of the people of Israel. And then it goes, uh, traces the gen- genealogy all the way to David, right? And then from David uh, through uh, the Babylonian deportation. So Babylon came in, deported all the Jews, uh, and then all the way to Jesus, Matthew even explains there's 14 generations between Abraham and David, between David and Babylon uh, deporting the Jews, there's another 14 generations. And then between the deportation and Christ, there's another uh, 14 generations. So every 14 generations, Matthew's talking about there's this major shift in God's redemptive plan, right? So it, it starts with Abraham and then 14 years later, major shift with David, right? The Davidic king, the Messiah is coming through the line of David. Uh, his kingdom will never perish, right? Uh, major shift. Uh, and then another major shift where Babylon comes in. Uh, the, the people are taken out of the land. The Jews have to learn how to worship God without their temple uh, and major shifts happened, right? Uh, and now 14 generations later, something's happening, right? The major shift is happening. And so Matthew builds this case. And then immediately after that, uh, he gets into how this virgin conceives of a child. And Matthew explains, he's like, this is a prophecy. It's in Isaiah, it's Isaiah 7. And Isaiah 7 talks about how there will be a virgin that conceives of a child and his name will be Emmanuel. And you, you guys, uh, we, we just had Christmas, right? Uh, we probably read that verse during Christmas. And so this, again, it fulfills prophecy. He's the promised Messiah. So a major shift is happening and he's the promised Messiah. And then in chapter two, uh, it skips over to these magi. So these magi come and they come to see Jesus, right? Uh, and, uh, and here, this is when an angel comes to Joseph and the angel tells Joseph, Jesus's life is in danger. You have to escape. So where does Joseph go? He escapes to Egypt, right? And so, and Matthew explains again, uh, this fulfills a prophecy because uh, the, the prophecy says, I will call my son out of Egypt. And the Jews, they always interpreted that as that's us, right? God called his people out of Egypt. And Matthew's like, no, 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 not, not you, Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel, right? Jesus is the one that he, that's called out of Egypt. And so again, he's, he's talking about, yes, he's the promised Messiah, but he's also the true Israel. And then, uh, then we, shortly after uh, Joseph escapes, 
We see Herod, he kills all the Jewish boys in the region in an attempt to kill Jesus. Now, perhaps this is starting to sound familiar, and if it does, good for you, but this mirrors uh, the story of Israel. Israel was a guy by the name of Jacob, his name changed to Israel. There was a famine in the land of Canaan or Israel, so there was danger, right? His life was threatened. And then where does he go to be safe? He goes to Egypt, right? And Joseph protects his family in Egypt. So Egypt offers safety for Israel, just like Egypt offered safety to the true Israel, Christ. And then we see a tyrannical king killing all the Jewish boys in an attempt to kill Israel or the true Israel, Jesus, just like Pharaoh tried to kill all the Jewish boys in an attempt to kill the nation of Israel. You guys seeing the parallels? And so after, after then uh, Egypt, uh, Israel leaves Egypt, right? And then we get into the Exodus. Uh, same thing happens in, uh, in Matthew. An angel comes back to Joseph and says, hey, Herod's dead, you can go, you can go back to Israel. So he goes back, but he finds a, there's a different tyrannical king, not quite as bad, but like still. So he's like, meh, maybe not Bethlehem. Let's go to Nazareth. And Matthew explains, this fulfills prophecy because the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. And the Jewish people, they, they did have a hard time with this. The Messiah, he was gonna be, call, uh, he was gonna be called out of Egypt. Uh, he was gonna be born in the, in the town of David, which would be Bethlehem. And, but he's gonna be called a Nazarene. Well, how, how does that work? And Matthew's like, no, no, it works perfect, right? Christ did these things. Even as a child, he did these things. And so, uh, so Christ comes back into Israel. Now he's in uh, Nazareth. And then we don't hear about Jesus again. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter three, uh, it gets into John the Baptist. Matthew talks about John the Baptist. Uh, and then immediately after John the Baptist, we see Jesus again. And Jesus is being baptized and then we go back to the nation of Israel. What happens? The nation of Israel, they leave Egypt and then God splits the seas and the people of Israel pass under the waters, right? This is known as Israel's baptism. So Israel undergoes a baptism. They pass under the waters, right? And then they come out the other side. And what happens to Jesus? He comes out of Egypt. And the next time we see him, he's being baptized, and then Israel, as they pass under the waters, what do they walk into? They walk into the wilderness. And Jesus, after his baptism, what does he do? He goes into the wilderness, right? He's tempted by Satan. And you see those temptations, they mirror the temptations that Israel went through when they were in the wilderness. Okay, you guys seeing this? Jesus is the true Israel. And yet where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus was successful. He's the Israel that Israel couldn't be. And, this, and you see all this imagery and, and, and Matthew's going through such great lengths to, to kind of tell this story and kind of call our attention to, wow, like this is it, right? Israel was supposed to, they were supposed to follow God. They were supposed to be the people of God. They were supposed to obey all of his commandments. They couldn't do it, but now we have a better Israel. We have a true Israel. He's doing it, right? And so uh, when he's in the wilderness, he, uh, he overcomes uh, temptation. Uh, he's, uh, he doesn't fall like Israel does. And then immediately after that, uh, that's when he, uh, he um, starts his ministry and he selects his disciples. And Matthew also explains uh, that when he starts his ministry, he doesn't start in Nazareth. He doesn't just go home. Uh, he goes further north to Galilee. Why would you do that? That's a Gentile region. Why would you go back to Galilee? Matthew explains that because it fulfills prophecy. It's almost like Jesus is the promised Messiah, right? 
And so uh, it, he talks about another prophecy in Isaiah, where it says, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, the people who sit in darkness, a light will dawn on them. And where is Galilee? It's in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So uh, he goes to Galilee to start his ministry. And, uh, and again, this fulfills prophecy. So you guys see how Matthew one through four, just Jesus is a true Israel. He is a promised Messiah. He is a true Israel. He is a promised Messiah over and over and over. And then we get to chapter five and something different happens. We see Jesus doing something and it mirrors something in Israel's history, but it doesn't quite mirror Israel, right? And it also doesn't really depict the promised Messiah, but Jesus is depicted as something different. Here on the Sermon on the Mount, he's actually more depicted as God himself. And that changes things. So we'll, we'll read uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 2, just the first two verses. They seem obscure or uh, unimportant, but they're, they're radical in what uh, Matthew is trying to communicate or tell us about our Christ. He says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, and then for the next three chapters, he gives them the Sermon on the Mount. And here in this Sermon on the Mount, he's telling his disciples, if you are my disciples, this is how you act. This, these, are your, these are my commandments. This is how you behave yourself. This is what a disciple of mine looks like. They behave in this, this, and this. They do this. They act like this. They share the light of God in very specific ways. Now, what's interesting about this is after Israel wanders in the wilderness for about three months, they find themselves at a mountain. It's Mount Sinai. And, uh, and Matthew uses this, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting word, this word mountain. It could be translated as mountain or hill, right? It could be both. But I think he uses that word specifically because it is ambiguous, because we find out in Luke that he was actually in a hill country. Uh, and so it's almost like Matthew's like, yeah, okay, it actually was a hill, but he's calling our attention to mountains. And why is that? Because Israel, again, they, after their wilderness, or at least the first portion before they messed up, they found themselves at a mountain, Mount Sinai. And, uh, and I want us to actually go to some of those verses uh, because it really, uh, it, it, the, the parallels um, are, are very important. So if you don't know, uh, they come to this mountain uh, and uh, God speaks to Moses and he tells him, hey, consecrate all the people. I'm gonna descend on the mountain. I'm gonna address my people, uh, make sure everyone's pure and nothing touches the mountain, nothing. If you do, uh, a lot of people are gonna die, okay? So Moses preps the people, he consecrates them, he stresses this. Uh, the people tell Moses, whatever God says, we agree to. And <laughs> that didn't work out for them. So then, it's, uh, then we find ourselves in Exodus 19.9, okay? God is addressing Moses one more time uh, just to make sure, right? No one's, no one's gonna touch the mountain, right, Moses? It's like, right. And then uh, Exodus 19:9, he says, "Then the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also trust in you forever." And then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, which again was, "Whatever the Lord says, we will do." OK? Now that's interesting is because God tells Moses, "I'm going to talk with you, I'm going to talk to you, but everyone's going to hear it." 
And this is, this is a common misunderstanding because what happens in, uh, in Exodus 20 is God gives the Ten Commandments, right? And a lot of people, I, I think we just naturally think that the first time the, the people of Israel were exposed to the Ten Commandments was in Jesus, or when Moses came down with the, with the tablets. Uh, but the, the nation of Israel actually heard the Ten Commandments before it was written on the tablets, which makes the worshiping of the golden calf particularly egregious because they absolutely knew better. It, wasn't, it didn't take them off guard or just they could say, oh, we, we didn't know, whoops. No, 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 God, God actually spoke it audibly to them. He spoke it to Moses in the presence of the people so that they may hear. And we actually see this playing out at the end of Exodus uh, 19, uh, 18 and 19, or chapter 19, verses 18 and 19. It says, now Mount Sinai uh, was all in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the entire mountain quaked violently. And then the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And I put in parentheses or sound, right? The word literally is just sound, right? Um, but, uh, but the idea is thunder and thunder generally goes with lightning and uh, <laughs> you'll see lightning a little bit later. So God speaks, when God speaks, it's this thunder, it's this sound. Moses speaks and then God answers in a thunder. And then immediately after verse 19, it gets into chapter 20, and then God gives uh, the 10 commandments, right? He audibly gives the 10 commandments to Moses. Exodus 20, 18 through 19, right after the 10 commandments are given, it says, and all the people were watching and hearing the thunder or the sound. So all the people were there. They heard the thunder, they heard the sound, they heard God speaking to Moses and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it all, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, so again, we know Moses was there. He hadn't ascended into the mountain yet. Moses was right there with them. So they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God to speak to us or we will die. And again, this shows that God wasn't speaking to them. He wasn't speaking to them. And they were saying, make sure that he doesn't because we will die if, we, if he does. So exactly what we see here is that God is speaking to Moses, but the expectation is that everyone hears. And what do we find in Matthew 5? It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. And then who came to him? His disciples. And he spoke to them, the disciples, saying, and then he gives a sermon on the mountain. So again, now, now we're starting to see something different, right? No longer the true Israel or the promised Messiah, but now Jesus is, is God himself. He's the lawgiver. He's sitting on the mountain, giving his disciples, giving his people the law. And we know that the crowd actually heard this because at Matthew, in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, so right after everything has, has been said uh, and the Sermon on the Mount has concluded, Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teachings. So the crowds heard, they were there. And for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And this, this is an important context. As we go for the next 16 weeks, 
What we need to understand is that Matthew, is, he wants you to know, he wants you to pay attention to the fact that Jesus is not talking like some rabbi, right? He's not talking like some, uh, some messianic king that's gonna overthrow Rome and set up a one world Jewish government, like just some man, right? Jesus is talking as, as if he's God here. And you will see that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, he's changing the law. He's just changing the rules of the game. You heard uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. You can't just change the law like that, Jesus. And he's like, yup, I just did. And so, and, and, this, and this, this is really kind of what's being drawn out here is that Christ, he's not just the true Israel. He's not just the promised Messiah, but he's also the Lord God. He's sitting on the mountain and addressing his people. And so he's giving them these commands. And so as we go through these 16 weeks, I want us to always just keep that in mind. Christ is not just some rabbi. He's not just a good teacher, but he's actually God incarnate addressing his disciples. And so uh, then after, immediately after, uh, we, now we transition to not just what Matthew wants us to make sure that we understand about Jesus, but now we start looking into what Jesus wants his disciples to know. This is what my disciples look like. And so we get into this whole Sermon on the Mount and he's, he's gonna tell us, this is, this is what a disciple does. But, uh, but the section that we're gonna look at, uh, we're gonna spend most of our time looking at uh, uh, chapter five, verses 11 through 16. Uh, but we are gonna go through uh, um, verses three through 10, which is known as the Beatitudes. So we'll, uh, I'll go ahead and read that uh, just so that we have, uh, have that context, but we're not gonna spend a lot of time uh, on the Beatitudes. So we just, said, uh, we just read that uh, Jesus sat on the mountains um, and, uh, and the crowds were there, but he was speaking to the disciples. And so Matthew 5, three, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, right? Uh, but all of these beatitudes, at least up until this point, uh, they're all communicated in the third person. Blessed are those people, right? Which could sting if you read, if you're like, imagine you're a disciple and, and Jesus is talking to you and you're just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try to not read into this, right? Because he's just talking about like, those people are gonna be blessed. And you're like, but what about me, right? And so there, there is some interesting, uh, uh, interesting correlations. We're not, we don't have time to get into all of it. Um, but if you look at Mount Sinai and God's giving not just the 10 commandments, but he gives all of the law to the people of Israel, uh, a lot of those laws is uh, God just kind of communicating to Israel, this is how I see mankind and this is how you should see them too, right? The, these are the people uh, that are my people. These are how you should treat other nations. This is how you should treat Gentiles. This is how you call other nations or cause other nations to worship me and worship God. 
So a lot of these laws do these, do these things. And, um, and Jesus kind of sets up this same, uh, same scenario. He's telling his disciples, this is how I view the world. And you could almost imagine the crowd is listening to this and they're just like, oh, maybe that's us, right? Like we're not in the second person. We're not in the disciples. We're not in yet, but God, he sees us. He recognizes us. He recognizes uh, the poor. He recognizes that we mourn. He recognizes, right? And so it, it allows for the crowd to kind of start participating, but not really. But also more importantly, it communicates uh, who Jesus is and how he thinks and how he views uh, the rest of the world. And this, and this kingdom is just totally flipped upside down, isn't it? This is my kingdom. This is what, uh, what, the, what eternity is gonna look like. It's gonna look like it's full of poor in spirit people. They're gonna be full of people mourning. It's gonna be full of people that are gentle. It's gonna be full of people that hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's gonna be full of merciful people. And everyone's just like, but, but where's, the, where's the Messiah? You know, like Rome has to get theirs first, right? Like, like we gotta come out on top first. Like, can we save the gentleness until we've overthrown Rome? Like this, this kingdom is just totally flipped upside down and, and that's what Christ is drawing them into is just, this is different. We're playing with different rules here, right? And again, as the lawgiver, as God speaking to his people, he just changes the rules like that, or at least what they perceive the rules to be. It was always about showing mercy to other people. And so what's interesting is that after these beatitudes, after he explains to his disciples, this is what uh, this, uh, this new kingdom is going to look like. This is, what, this is how God is now dealing uh, with his people. Then we get into Matthew 5, 11 through 16. And, uh, and if, uh, if you know the beatitudes really well, you probably saw me read through those and you're like, wait, you're missing one or maybe two. It depends on how you translate it. And that's true. I am missing one because the the next one is in verse 11, but here it switches from the third person to the second person. So Jesus is talking about blessed are those, but now in verse 11, he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then in verse 12, he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, back to Israel, back to Sinai. I want us to imagine the scene. God is sitting on the mountain. He's on Mount Sinai. And who's he talking to? Not the people of Israel, Moses. And so now Jesus is sitting on the mountain or hill. And he's addressing who? Not the crowds, but his disciples. And what does he tell them? He tells them, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, right? Because why would you be happy about that? Why would you be blessed because of that? Because your reward in heaven is great. And just like before you, all the prophets went through it as well. And here we find again, back to Moses. Was Moses persecuted? Was he lied about? right? Was he insulted? Was he a prophet, right? And you see all these, these imageries where it's, you see God speaking to his Moses, right? Or his disciples. And he's telling them, we've seen this before. And yet the, and all the Jewish people, they look up to Moses, right? They admire Moses. They refer to Moses 
And he's saying, you're my Moses, right? And, and so this, and this, this changes how we look at the Sermon on the Mount. With, with the gravity and the weight and the responsibility that Moses carried as he did his ministry, the disciples are now looking forward and going, walking with Jesus. And as they walk with Jesus, they carry that weight. People look up to you. They look to you. And what do they see when they look at you? Do they see God? Do they see the glory of God coming off your face like they did with Moses? Do they interact with you uh, and, uh, and they, they, they know God better? Or they consult with you so that they can understand the will of God? There's a weight to this. And so he tells them, be blessed because people insult you and persecute you and falsely accuse you and rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets, just like Moses, who was before you. That's also gonna be important as we understand this next section. And this gets into uh, Matthew five thirteen, And he tells them, you are the salt of the earth, but the salt has become tasteless. How can it become salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. Now, this is interesting, and it's a, it's a little bit of a, um, I don't know. He's not serious in that, how do you make salt salty again? Uh, because you, you don't, right? If salt's not salty, then it's not salt anymore, right? It's like water that's not wet. Okay, well, it's not water, right? In the same way, salt that's not salty, you can't make it salty again because the only way you can make it salty again is just by adding salt. And now it's salt, but it wasn't salt. So- Right? And, that's, and that's kind of what's, uh, what's being communicated here is that you're the salt of the earth. And if you've lost your saltiness, then you weren't really salt in the first place, right? And this wouldn't have been that uncommon uh, in first century Israel. Uh, they would have got their salt from the Dead Sea region, right? Uh, and if you know anything about that, the reason why it's so salty is because all the sediment runs off into the Dead Sea, right? So not just salt is running off in the Dead Sea, but other sediment too, so if you get a clump of what you think is salt, but if it has a lot of residue or other minerals or other, uh, other just sediment in there, you're gonna use that salt and it's just sand, right? Or something else. You're like, this salt isn't salt at all. It's just residue. It's useless. And what do you do with it? You throw it on the road, right? And, uh, and this, this also isn't necessarily Jesus saying like, well, this is how you pave your roads is you use saltless salt. No, he's, this, that's what you do with your refuse, right? You throw it in the street, right? Your garbage and other refuse. So it's useless. So you throw it into the street. So this, uh, this is interesting uh, is because what we need to understand is what, what, what was salt used for in the first century? There's a lot of different uses, right? Um, but I think it'd probably be best for us to, uh, uh, to look at it from Old Testament perspective. Uh, Jesus generally, he's, he's calling back to the Old Testament uh, in some way. And there's three major ways in which we see salt using, uh, at least throughout the Old Testament or, or, or Israel's history. Uh, one way is that they use it to preserve foods, right? Kind of cure meats uh, or prevent bacteria from setting in uh, on something. They'd also use it to flavor food, right? Uh, just like we do. 
I don't know if you've ever had something uh, or if you've eaten something bland and you're just like throw some salt on it and boom, it's fixed, right? It's better. Um, yeah, and uh, <laughs> I don't know, have you guys ever had like uh, chocolate covered bacon? Have you guys ever like heard of this? Okay, it's a thing, okay? I can't say if it's good or not. I, I don't know if I've ever had it, but it is? Okay, all right. Okay, but yeah, so, uh, so imagine, right? Bacon has a bit of saltiness, right? There's a saltiness to it. And it just, it, it, I could imagine that it would make those flavors come alive, right? And, uh, and so there's this, this idea that salt just kind of gives a vibrancy to, to the thing that you're eating, Right? And, uh, and so it really begs this question, is, is Jesus talking about salt preserving or is it talking about uh, uh, making something taste better? And so we can obviously read this and it, it, uh, it says, uh, but if salt has uh, become tasteless, and so we just immediately think, okay, he's talking about taste, right? Making food taste better. Uh, that could be the case. Uh, however, that word specifically tasteless, uh, it could be also translated as foolishness, uh, which is weird. Why would one word mean tasteless and foolishness at the same time? Uh, and the thinking behind it or what the word is actually communicating uh, is not, ne- not necessarily tasteless as a physical taste bud, uh, but more of a flatness, right? Uh, a kind of a, uh, a, just a blandness to life or what does foolishness bring about in life? Just a, just a worthlessness, a, a blandness to life, Right? What's also interesting is that in Psalms, uh, there is a couple instances in which salt is actually kind of idiomatic or a motif of wisdom. That changes things, especially if tastelessness could be translated as foolishness. And so when we read that section again, uh, let's read it as if it is wisdom and foolishness. It almost reads like a proverb. You are the wisdom of the earth, but if the wisdom has become foolishness, how can it be made wise again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. This, this changes things, right? And, and I, I think the reason why he's using the word salt is yes, to call your attention to wisdom, but also uh, just call your attention to the fact that salt changes things. It's distinct, it's something different, but it also makes other things better, right? Salt is its own thing, but it also makes things taste better. It is its own thing, but it also prevents decay and death. And that's, that's really, uh, and same with wisdom, right? Wisdom is distinct, it's its own thing, but it also makes life more vibrant, right? It also helps other people deal with the death and decay that they're constantly surrounding with, surrounded with in this world. And so we, we see this uh, kind of played out uh, when Jesus tells them, you are the salt of the earth, And what he's getting at is that my disciples, they change the things around them and they change them for the better. My disciples, they they stave off the death and decay in people's lives. My disciples, they bring a vibrancy or a brightness to the life that they're living and the lives of the people around them. It's through their wisdom that they change the world. They change the people around them for the better. This is what my disciples look like. They're salt and they change the world. And that's our first point is that Jesus's disciples, they change the world around them and they change it for the better. And then the next section in verse 14, he says, not only are you salt, but you are light. 
of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Um, and so this, uh, this is uh, communicating this idea of again, light of the world and also this city on a hill. Uh, it's kind of somewhat debated on if the city on the hill is a, it's a, if it's a separate parable or is it still talking about light? Um, it would stand to reason that it's still talking about light, right? So imagine the city on a hill uh, at nighttime, uh, they're not just all going to go to sleep at the same exact time and no one's lighting a light, right? But it's a collective city of all of their lights shining at the same time at night. You could imagine there's no hiding that city. There's no hiding it in the daytime, right? So good luck trying to hide it in the nighttime when you're the only thing that's shining. And this is, this is what's being communicated here is that, uh, is that Jesus is telling them, you are the light of the world. Now, if you remember just the previous chapter, Matthew just told us that in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, a light dawned. So Jesus is this light, he is the light. And yet now he's sitting on the mountain and he's telling his disciples, you are the light. And so he's communicating to his people, I'm giving you my light. I'm giving you who I am so that you then shine the light that I am. You shine my light to all the darkness or to, uh, to all the people. And in verse 15, it says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but they put it on a lampstand and give, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And what's, this, does, this isn't rocket science. I'm sure you guys can all see this. What does light do? Well, it illuminates, right? It allows you to see the world as it truly is. That's what light does. If you ever wake up in the middle of the night and you try to like go somewhere and you're stumbling over yourself and you're trying to like just feel around to see where stuff is, right? Oh, I forgot my kid put their Lego right there, right? And then so you step on it in the middle of the night. So you, you have a hard time seeing the world as it truly is, right? In the darkness. But when the light turns on, you can see everything and you see where it is. You can navigate through the, the perilous Legos sitting on the floor. And so this, this is what light does. And so he says, you are the light of the world, and light, if it's doing its job, it shines, it's noticeable, you see it, you can't hide it. I mean, if you can, uh, I suppose you can, but if you do, and there's no point to it. And now the basket that's being referred to here, a basket that's put over the lamp, generally, uh, it was kind of like an earthen uh, vessel. Uh, they actually use it to measure grain. Um, like one basket full of grain is gonna make this many loaves, blah, blah, blah. So if you take an uh, earthen bowl like that and you put it over, uh, over a lamp, um, not only is the light not going to shine, but the light is also gonna die because it's gonna suffocate. There's not gonna have enough oxygen in there, right? And that's, that's the, the, the image that he's painting is that you don't light a lamp and then stick a basket over it because then you should have just not lit the lamp in the first place. It didn't do anything. It didn't cast light on anybody. It didn't illuminate the house. It didn't show anyone what the world actually is. Um, and worse than that, um, the whole point of the light uh, wasn't, wasn't allowed to be uh, executed. Just like a city on a hill, right? The point of a city on a hill is that everyone knows where it is. They can see it. It also protects them. But when I get too, uh, too into that, trying to determine, determine that as like some kind of meaning. But there's this, there's this idea that light uh, is meant to be seen it's meant to be known. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about with his disciples is not only are they salt, not only do they offer a brightness and a, uh, and a, a vibrancy to the life around them, not only do they change the world, but also their discipleship cannot be hidden. Just like Jesus talks about a city on a hill cannot be hidden. There's no trees tall enough to hide the city, right? And if you hide the light, then it wasn't light uh, or it wasn't allowed to do its job in the first place. And then in verse 16, he talks about this interesting, uh, this interesting idea where he talks about what is the light. He says, your light must, it's an imperative, your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Now, what's interesting about this is he never actually told his disciples that they were children of God. Here, he just assumes it, right? It's almost as God is just like saying, listen, you're my disciples, uh, you're my children, right? It's, it's just an assumption. He's just talking to them as if they're kids, right? And that actually is kind of how father, uh, father and kid uh, dynamics work, right? Uh, like, I don't have to go up to Sam and just be like, hey, by the way, you're my son, right? <laughs> He's got it. And so in the same way, you almost actually see this kind of playing out where Jesus is saying, hey, by the way, you shine your light so that people will see your good works. Why? So that they glorify your father. You can almost imagine like the disciples have been like, wait, wait, back up. Like we're, we're sons and daughters. Like it's just an assumption we're in. We're a part of the kingdom. We're, uh, we are sons and daughters uh, of God. And again, this, uh, this is God speaking to his people, just Jesus speaking to his disciples. Uh, it, he's making up, uh, he's giving them their law. He's giving them their code of conduct. And he's saying, these, these things, is what, this is what makes you, you. Your light shines before people in such a way that they see your good works. And so do your good works so that people see them, right? And in the intention of people will glorify God because of it. Okay, so this gets interesting, right? Because the Pharisee did this, but Jesus didn't like it when the Pharisees did it. So what's different, right? The Pharisees, they would give alms, they would give to the poor, and then they'd blow a trumpet, right? Or ring a bell, right? And saying, look at what this good work I did, right? Or they go to the temple and they pray really, really loud and pray really, really long, right? Because I want people to recognize their good works, right? So they did this, their light shined really bright, right? And everyone saw their good works, but it didn't work for them. And we even see this in chapter six, uh, Matthew chapter six, as he's going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, about halfway through, he tells his disciples, uh, listen, when you pray, pray in secret. When you give to the poor, give in secret. When you do good works, do it in secret. You're like, okay, so which, which is it, right? Is my light supposed to shine so that other people see my good works or am I supposed to do it in secret so that no one sees my good works? You gotta pick one, Jesus, right? And this, this is interesting uh, is because when, when we go through chapter six and I don't wanna spoil that, I don't know, it'll be later. You guys will forget anyways. So the, uh, <laughs> the <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So, but in, in chapter six, uh, he, uh, Jesus talks about how uh, this, uh, these things that the Pharisees do when they ring their bells, when they blow their trumpets, yes, it's calling attention to their good works, but why? It's for their glory. 
But here Jesus says, make sure your light shines or your line, your, your light must shine before people in such a way that they see your good works so that they bring glory to your father. Now that's tricky, right? You shine your light so that people see your good works, right? So they got to see it. They got to see you doing something, but you have to let them see it in such a way that they glorify God and not you. Now that, that's, that's a fine line, right? That can get tricky. And so how, how do we execute this? What, tell us, Jesus, like, what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we walk that line? And you'll have to come back for the next 16 weeks to find that out. Because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is, right? <laughs> so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling his disciples, this is, this is how you live this out. This is how you salt the earth. This is how you make, this is how you change the world around you for the better. This is how you bring vibrancy and life to the world around you. And you stave off the death and decay that surrounds us in this broken world. This is how you do this. And you do this and you do this. And this is how you, uh, you shine or you show your discipleship. You can't hide it. And you do that by showing him this and this and this. And then he goes on and he uh, explains just like chapter six, where he says, this is how you shine your light. You show your good works so that other people glorify God and not you. This is how you walk that line. This is what you do. And you do these things, you, you follow these commandments, you follow these laws, and you will be one of these disciples, one of these children of God. You will cause others to worship God because of the light that you're shining. And this is what's gonna be so important for us as we go throughout these next 16 weeks is that we remember all six of these things. Because Matthew, he's, he's been building up to this. And now it's, in this, it's at this crescendo uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, right? This is where uh, his, God's people get, his, get their law, right? Or Jesus' disciples, they get their, uh, some people don't call this a Sermon on the Mount. They call it the discourse of discipleship. This is how they find out how to be a disciple. And this is the kind of the crescendo. And this is where Jesus starts his ministry. And then it just, uh, it just kind of sails from here. So as we go throughout these 16 weeks, we have to remember that Jesus is the true Israel, he is the promised Messiah, but he's also the Lord God. So we need to remember that about Jesus as we go throughout uh, the Sermon on the Mount is that he's speaking to his people as if he is God because he is. And the crowds even recognize that, right? They were amazed that he, he spoke with authority. We also need to remember that as we go through these, uh, these 16 weeks, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we have to remember these three things about Jesus's disciples. This sets the stage for, so how do we do this? How do we salt? How do we shine? How do we, uh, how do we make this brighter? How do we cause other people to, uh, to, to glorify God? How do we do this, Jesus? We have to remember that this, this is what sets the stage. His disciples, they, they will be salt. You will change the world. Uh, Jesus's disciples, uh, they can't hide their discipleship. And the last thing is that Jesus's disciples, they cause other people to worship God. And he'll build that out and he'll explain this in great detail. And yes, the standards are gonna be high, right? And we're not gonna be able to attain all of them, but take heart, we have a Holy Spirit for that, right? And, uh, and this also is going to cause, as we go through these 16 weeks, it's gonna cause uh, maybe some conviction, right? 
or there will be moments where we will find uh, that we don't measure up to the standard of discipleship. And, uh, and there can be guilt and, uh, and, and uh, I guess, disparity associated with this. But what we need to remember is the Beatitudes that he just communicated to us, right? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. The people that chase God, the people that want to live up to the standard, the people that are moving toward discipleship, the people that claim Christ, repent from their sins, and they confess Jesus Christ as their savior, These people are the disciples and they will measure up, but it may take time. And we call that process sanctification, right? So as we go into these 16 weeks, I want us to keep in mind that these these are the elements that are at play, right? We're not just dealing with a God that just leaves us to fail, right? But we're dealing with a God that actually works with us and shapes us into something that looks like a disciple of Christ, something that looks like a child of God. So I would encourage you as you go throughout your, uh, really these 16 weeks, uh, just read uh, Matthew five through seven, uh, read it often, but read it through these lenses, right? And it really is going to help us understand uh, Jesus is talking as if he's God. And then also uh, Jesus wants to understand that this is why he's giving us these, these standards. It's because he expects us to change the world. He expects us uh, to shine or show our discipleship. And he expects us to cause other people to glorify God because of him. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.